Hello, I'm Laurie. And I'm Steve. And welcome to another episode of This Podcast is Gay. Welcome to our special festive edition. Yay, jingle bells, jingle bells. Jingle bells. is not actually anything to do with Christmas in it, but it's coming out around Christmas. Apologies to our many fans for the delay. Quite lots happened actually in the last couple of months. Steve's had a really big birthday, which ends with a zero. Yes, but we'll leave, leave you that. to guess which zero. Yeah, we've been a little bit sidetracked by DIY at Steve's. Laurie's made a duck out of polystyrene. Yeah. Middle class problems, really. Why is making a duck out of polystyrene a problem? No, 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 DIY is a middle class oh, problem. Right. Yes, Laurie has turned his DIY talents to my flat. Basically, Steve's forced me to do loads of DIY on his flat, um, but the results will be amazing. This week's episode, we're interviewing another creative couple, Tom and Sean. We went to visit them in Inner Temple, where Sean works as head gardener. So we're going to be speaking to Sean about his work there and how his career developed up to that point. And we're going to be talking to Tom about his very creative career as well, which has particularly interesting LGBT twists to it. So without further ado, with a festive cheer, here is part one. Sean. Okay, well, welcome to Tom and Sean. We're really pleased to have you. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming round. So at the moment, we're sitting in in a temple, the gardener's flat, no less. So, Sean, you studied international relations and politics at Sheffield University, and now you're a gardener or horticulturalist. Tell us about that transition. So I reckon that... It was quite random, so I don't think I should have studied international relations and politics. But I was kind of academic at school and college, so I was encouraged to do that. Looking back, I would have rather have studied art. And then coming to the end of my degree, quite randomly, I think I was doing my exams for my finals, and I just thought, actually, what am I going to do after uni? I'm going to need to get a job. What's that job going to be? And almost out of nowhere, just decided that maybe gardening would be a nice job to do. So at Sheffield, I don't know if people know it, but um, I didn't until going there to uni. And I kind of thought it was going to be all full Monty or mining, kind of horrible. It's not, actually. It's really nice. And there's an amazing winter garden, a kind of conservatory in the centre that was built for the millennium. I used to hang out there because there was loads of time when you're at uni and you do politics. You go in like three hours a week. So there's lots of time for garden visits. I would just find myself at the Botanic Gardens, this conservatory and lots of different kind of gardens, just chilling out, reading. And then I decided, actually, maybe I'd rather be in this environment all the time. So how did you get into it professionally then? After uni, then me and a friend went travelling and my friend had to come back to finish her final year and I didn't. And I didn't know what I was going to do. They had this idea of gardening and we were in Southeast Asia and I was kind of thinking that I would do some voluntary work. And in my head, it was like, oh, will I go to an orphanage? Will I do something worthy? And then we were in Thailand and it was the year after the tsunami and there was a garden being built by a couple, a Thai guy, an Australian um, woman, Toy and Carol, who were amazing. And they and were building a garden for the one year anniversary of the tsunami. And there was a volunteer project happening. So I stayed on there for an extra four minutes, to, um, four months, uh, not minutes, to help them and um, finish the garden. 
And then after that, I did train. So I did a one day a week course back in Manchester, had an allotment and basically, long story short, kind of eventually got onto the diploma at RHS Wisley, which is a two year course and living on site and kind of training alongside the gardeners and horticulturalists and scientists there, as well as studying in spare time. So what does studying horticulture actually involve? Um, It's quite a lot of science, which is the nasty shock, actually, when you start (laughs) going into it. Because you kind of think, oh, great, I'm going to be outside, I'm going to be gardening, lots of beautiful things. And then we actually study it. There's loads and loads of plant science. But there's also the more kind of practical side of things, which I'm not great at to do with like hard landscaping and things like that. There's also just actually learning, most, the majority of the training, I would say, is just learning a certain amount of botany, but the plant names, and then actually um, the kind of right plant, right place philosophy of learning about where plants will be happy in their habitats, and then how you can mimic that to create a kind of artwork or a garden that you want. So you've worked in quite a range of gardens since you graduated from that course. Yes, I mean, actually, I say there is a range. Before that, to get on the course, you need to do have a certain amount of experience. So as well as having your level two, you also need to have, to have demonstrated that you're serious about being a gardener. It's not mm. just a hobby. And you have actually proven that because you've done a certain amount of time doing it. Because if it's the reality of doing it, it's quite different to what you imagine it's going to be like. And so I was really lucky before Wisley, I was a seasonal gardener at a garden called Hestercombe in Somerset, which is by Edwin Lutchens and Gertrude Cheekle, and it's really beautiful if you get a chance to go down there. If you're in Somerset, I'd highly recommend it. I went back to Wisley after training there and managed a team for a period, and then I also kind of went to different gardens when I was there. There's kind of lots of opportunities for bursaries and travel, which is one of the exciting things um, about gardening. And... After Wisley, I did a role for the National Trust, which wasn't actually based in a garden, was based in Manchester, and then worked at Kensington Palace before in a temple. Wow, so big mix. So, so what was, was it gardener in residence in Manchester, the role that you had there? Yeah, so it's part of, I mean, Tom could probably speak a bit more um, about the National Trust these days than I could, but when I was working for them, they were looking at the role of the National Trust in terms of looking after special places um, in cities, not just countryside gardens, and their role, the lady, one of the ladies that found it, Octavia Hill, was very radical and socialist, and she was behind saving quite a lot of spaces in London, and the kind of activism when they started was saving the green belts from being built on and different things. And they're kind of looking back at themselves and thinking, if she was alive, what would she do or what would she think? And this role was not on property, it was working in collaboration with other organisations such as the City Council. I did quite a lot of projects with the art galleries of how to promote urban greening and green space for the well-being of the city. So some of it was policy-based, looking at um, actually how councils with cut budgets look after their green space. And some of it was more actually getting people involved in projects. So looking back on that job, uh, what do you feel like you were most proud of? We converted... Um, kind of quite a lot of verges in the cities and kind of big areas of kind of unused grassland in parks over to meadow Um, I can't that was a massive collaboration the National Wildflower Centre based in Knowsley outside Liverpool and they were involved in it 
so I was just a small part of that but I was proud of that and then the other things I was proud of was in my second year I collaborated a lot with Manchester Art Gallery and we did a couple of kind of large-scale installations at the Art Gallery but also kind of out in the city connected to it so there was one related to snowdrops in the First World War and one to do with the lost gardens of Manchester kind of telling the story of these spaces and gardens that used to be in the city centre which have been built over as a way of kind of making people um, value what we have and protect kind of the gardens that are left. So one of the big jobs that you've had recently is head gardener at Kensington Palace and as part of that you designed a garden in memory of 20 years since the death of Princess Diana which had a large amount of media coverage but tell us about the sort of process of designing that garden and the symbolism that went into that. So I was quite fortunate that when I took over at Kensington Palace it was coming up it was a couple of years before the anniversary and I, we knew that the palace was going to put on an exhibition, um, that there would still be, I mean, it's still quite recent history, even though it's 20 years since Princess Diana sadly passed away. And when, once I was there anyway, that we were kind of, they were talking about what they wanted to do to celebrate the memory and this exhibition of her dresses and kind of photographs and telling her life through her style but also the charity work she did was going to happen in the palace and I was talking to gardeners who used to be there when when she was there when she was living at Kensington Palace and they were talking about how friendly she was how interested in the garden she was and particularly the area known as the sunken garden and she would go out and um, kind of early in the morning, I'd for a jog, I think sometimes rollerblading or different things, and she would chat to them and ask what's going on. And kind of from that, basically, I just thought that we should do something in the garden alongside what was happening inside the palace and um, to celebrate that memory. And then from there, I was just thinking of ideas and what was being covered within the, the exhibition of her dresses uh, and also just more kind of research into the princess and what she liked and her time at Kensington. And from that, the idea of a white garden developed. Um, so there was quite some strong pieces. I do quite like fashion in a way. So um, the dress exhibition I did I did like, there's the really famous Elvis dress by Catherine Walker. Um, it has the high um, collar and jacket over the top of kind of a white dress. And it's covered in kind of lots of tiny little um, kind of pearls or diamondy type things. It's really striking. That was one of the key pieces within the exhibition. There's also the Maria Testino photographs where she's wearing white and a lot of them are looking very radiant. And it was almost from that really that the idea of the white garden came about. And then actually how to translate that into the flowers that were part of it. It was more a feeling of celebration and exuberance and kind of uplifting of the way that she used to make people feel from the stories that people told. But there were kind of key plants, so she was given as a child from her brother forget-me-nots and they stayed with her as one of her favourite flowers. So we featured in the springtime kind of thousands and thousands of white frothy forget-me-nots. She always had lilies in her apartments, so we included lots of lovely lilies. I mean, it's quite easy, really, because the flowers are so gorgeous. Also, roses. She was she was really into roses. Um, and so scent also was a kind of a big thing. So that it was a space that people would go to. I don't know if you know the Sunken Garden, but it's kind of designed as a picture where it's sunken and there's a covered walkway all the way round of lime trees, but they've been trained into an arch. And then there's windows cut out looking into the garden. So it's a very peaceful space. It's almost Japanese in design, where you're looking at the garden as a reflective space, but you can sit on the walls 
and yeah, it's quite a, quite a fun space in some ways as well. So it just all really came together. Um, in, in the, the ideas all sat at the right time. That the royal household um, and her family were very pro the idea, and then and then I was like, oh god, we've got to do it now, <laughs> um, which was great. So how long did it take to sort of design and then create? So it was about 18 months, really, from the point of me having the idea and then talking to the right people about it and then it opening. Um, so it was fairly quick in terms of gardening terms. It was all perfectly timed because of the decisions had to be made so that we could actually plan everything and get it all ready for that point. And you got to meet William, Harry and Kate? Yeah, so the day before the 20th anniversary, they decided that on the actual day... They didn't want to do anything, but the day before, that they would go around the garden together as their moment, I suppose, for the public of what they were doing for, for the kind of anniversary. It feels slightly weird because of it's still their mum, so I don't know it's a weird thing, but um, it was really lovely meeting them. They were really friendly, quite normal. I mainly spoke to Prince Harry. So, yeah, I mean, it rained, which was kind of annoying, but then it didn't matter, so... Brilliant. So you're now head gardener at the Inner Temple. What led you to make that transition? I was really happy at Kensington, so I wasn't necessarily looking to to leave Kensington Palace. Um, But I did know, so I moved to London to be with Tom, and our life is in London. And one of my best friends, who's also a gardener, she had said, if you're going to be in London, the, the job that you want is the one at the Inner Temple. Um, she knew the head gardener before me. Um, she kind of knew the garden. I knew the garden a bit. I'd been a couple of times, but not so intimately. And she was like, if that rot job ever comes up, you've just got to go for it. So that was kind of in the back of my mind. And then basically she said, oh, the head gardener is leaving. So that job will be coming up. I think you should go for it. So I was like, yeah, actually, maybe I should go for it. I mean, the thing with certain roles is in gardening, they might not come up again, really. So when they do come up, if you're in the right place and the right time and things, then it does make sense to, to grab them. So what have you found the kind of particular pleasures and challenges of this role to be? So the garden is a real special place. It's almost a secret garden. I didn't know of it before being here, but I'd have been to London many times and walked past almost the garden without knowing it was here for years before that. And when you're on the embankment, you don't really know the whole world of the temple that's going on between the embankment and Fleet Street. So I find that quite, it's quite magical in some ways. And it's also one of the oldest gardens in London. So there's the archives, say, a record of a gardener being here or a head gardener being here since 1307. And that's the earliest record There might be earlier than that. So it's quite crazy. And then also just the story of the garden reflects the story of London and the river. So half the garden used to actually be the Thames and the land was reclaimed and was given to the garden. So historically, before the um, 1700s, you would have came straight off the Thames and walked into the Inner Temple Garden. And then the 1880s, we got another big piece of land when the embankment project happened by Bazalgette. So kind of all these layers of history and there's really magical trees and the borders are really special and it's quite a big space for its location in the city, but it's also quite intimate. And 
I don't know, I'll just keep going on about it. But um, I mean, the, the historic garden, there's also been a tradition that every head gardener has taken it forward in a different way and been room for experimentation. So though it's listed and there's conservation issues, which I need to respect and I very much respect, actually there's quite a lot of freedom in terms of the design and how you take the garden forward, which is really exciting. So how do you make that distinction between keeping a sort of sense of tradition and making your mark or doing something exciting in the garden? It's in a way there's something that actually the National Trust taught me and it's something that Tom is really helpful and his whole discipline feeds into how I look at the garden but we in gardening worlds you talk about spirit of place quite a bit so there would be the statement of significance or the conservation it's what's the very important historical elements and you know them and they're things that can't be touched and if you do want to change anything you need to get planning permission which we do for for a lot of things but then there's other things which is more just actually what is the essence of the place and how does that how do all those things that you can't really put a finger on kind of add together to give a place a feeling so for me, what's exciting is I know the the pathways, the shape of the pathways, we can't change significantly. The mature trees, we wouldn't want to change anyway. But it's how you kind of link all those elements together for me to make it more surreal and more dreamlike is my vision for the garden for the time that I'm here. So I want it to feel quite Alice in Wonderlandy that you come off the river and you kind of go into this world that's overlooking the Thames, all the key landmarks of London, Big Ben, the National Theatre, the Oxford Tower. But then actually you're in a very quiet, dark space at night, but in the day that's very... Um, just the plantings overwhelms you, is what I'm after. So it sounds as, as much design as it is planting stuff and tending to stuff. Is that is that fair? Or playing around, yeah, it definitely is. I mean, here... It's a lot more just playing around. Um, so other places, so at Kensington, I would actually do a design and then that's what the garden would be. And here it's just much more, let's try this here and let's try that. And if it doesn't work, let's move things and, and much more playful. But at the same time, I mean, I'm not going to start talking about it. There's a lot of spreadsheets. There's a lot of budgets. There's a lot of emails. There's lots of stakeholder engagement. Like, it isn't all this creating this kind of romantic world of what my day-to-day life is. There's a lot of office. And also managing the team, which I actually enjoy. But people management is people management. So you're living and working on site. As a couple, you're living in the gardener's flat what's that been like and how have you adapted your lives I mean beforehand so Tom was based in Camberwell and when I moved um in then we were in Camberwell and that was really fun so it's like the next piece I suppose onwards it's great because we're still in London so we still have all our friends of our favorite places but it's still actually a whole new world living at the temple and so centrally and for me, I did live on site at Wisley, but we lived in the village, which wasn't actually in the gardens, and you'd cycle in and out of work, and there was a little bit of separation. This is, you know, very much... You're always at work, and always it's hard to switch off from the garden, um, which has, has its benefits, but at certain times, I just want to not think about it or see it, which is horrible. Um, but then you just go away for the weekend or, or do something different. I think yeah for, for me it's I get all the the 
the pleasure and the benefits of living in this amazing location next to the beautiful three acre garden without any of the stress so I can walk through the garden and be like oh Sean like I really love this plant this week it's looking amazing and wow isn't that water looking great without seeing the spreadsheets and the agony and the watering that goes in that goes into it that for me is I think very different from Sean's day-to-day experience. So thank you, Sean, for a great interview. Click on to the next episode for part two, Tom. Tom.